Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcast. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conference and seminar presentations where you can hear from people like Anne Pettifor, Joe Larragui and Tony Fahey. Our 10 minute lesson series where we give a brief overview of a policy topic and this is meant to be a useful introduction to an area that we hope our listeners will find useful and our interview series, where we have a chat with experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. Today, to mark International Women's Day on the 8th of March, I'm joined by Sandra McCullough, Women's Economic Equality Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Enjoy. So thank you so much for joining me, Sandra. I know you're you're absolutely hectic at the moment. You're very welcome. Let's go to be here. Thank you. Uh, so just to dive straight into it, I suppose, uh, what do you think are the most pressing issues for the National Women's Council of Ireland at the moment? Well, I suppose, you know, we're, we're, we're having this conversation to, to mark um, International Women's Day. So I suppose, you know, it, it's useful to look back at how the day developed and kind of why it matters for us in Ireland in 2020 and 2021, rather. Um, so I suppose, you know, the day itself has its roots in... Um, the poverty and inequality faced by women in the late kind of 19th century and early 20th century in America. And, you know, at the time it was, it was a period of kind of great activism by uh, women trade unionists um, working with what we would, the garment industry, but what we would now call, I suppose, sweatshop factories. Um, and in 1907, um, the women held a hunger march in New York um, in protest at the very dangerous working conditions, really long working hours. It would have been a 14 hour working day at the time um, or a 12 hour day, um, low wages and so on. Um, and the police attacked the march. Um, so in the following year, on the 8th of March, a commemorative march was then held. Um, and that then became kind of a milestone in, in women's history. Um, so I suppose, you know, we're 100 years or more than 100 years from then. Um, and it's still, International Women's Day is still a day for women kind of around the world to commemorate kind of their struggles and celebrate their achievements. So I suppose when we reflect on kind of how marginalised and excluded kind of women have been in our past, obviously we live in a very different uh, world, a very different Ireland today. Um, but I suppose a lot of the issues that were important then um you know, there's still pressing issues today. So, you know, work issues like low pay. Um, for many women, paid work is no guarantee of in- income adequacy. And uh, we know that women predominate in low paid and precarious work. Um, more than half of wholesale and retail workers um, earn around the, the less than the living wage, they're minimum wage workers. Um, six out of 10 childcare workers earn less than the living wage. And again, they're predominantly 90 something percent of, of childcare workers are women. But we, we know now as well, you know, what, what we what we now call essential workers, um, you know, almost 70 percent of essential workers are women. But again, they're among the lowest paid in the economy. Um, and then, you know, responsibility for care remains a huge issue. So, you know, despite um, massive increases in women's labour market participation, women continue to bear primary responsibility for care. You know, as, as in, in the last kind of um, in 2019, the last um, census data, we, we know that 94% of those whose principal economic status is looking after home and family, 94% of those people, that group were women. Um, and it's not just in childcare. Um, you know, older women are five times more likely than men to leave um, the workforce to care for kind of an older family member as well. So, you know, childcare and the absence of a public model of early years um, and school-aged childcare then is, remains kind of a, a huge barrier still. 
Um, and of course, poverty. Um, poverty is poverty was a huge issue um, 100 years ago, and it remains a huge issue. Um, it remains unacceptably high for particular groups. Um, so we, you know, we know those groups are, are lone parents, um, which are predominantly women, disabled people, um, even among older people. You know, older, older people are often kind of held up as one of the groups that are at least at risk of poverty. Um, but if you look at gender differences among kind of the older population, um, those age 65 and over, 15% of men, but 25% of women are at risk of poverty in that, in that age group. So, you know, it's still, and, and women in rural areas then as well experience those kind of additional challenges in terms of their house having a, an adequate household income. Absolutely. So a, lot, a lot of those issues, though, you know, th- there, were, there were live issues 100 years ago and they remain issues now today. And that, I suppose, feeds into the, the next question I have in terms of, you know, do you think, I suppose, the issues that, that were on the table pre-pandemic, have they changed in any way since, I suppose, since last March, or are we still kind of looking at the same things? Yeah, it's not, I mean, they've, they've it's not so much that they've changed or that they're not different issues, but rather that the pandemic has kind of deepened um, and reinforced kind of the existing kind of gender inequalities. So again, kind of, you know, in terms of workers, like from, from the onset of the pandemic, you know, it, it quickly emerged that some of the groups that were impacted the most were kind of women and, and young workers and migrants, people working in kind of, um, hospitality and retail and so on now kind of when you look at the stats on um the pop on the, the pandemic unemployment payment uh, it's often reported you know that there are more men in receipt of the pop um so you know therefore the greatest impact on, on has has been on men in terms of workers but i think sometimes people kind of don't necessarily look at the fact that there are more men in the labor market overall because of the barriers um that women experienced to, to labor market participation so if you look at you know it just depends on how you look at things so if you look at the latest labor force survey for example which is from um quarter three of last year, uh, you'll see the kind of the impact on women workers. So while there was an increase of um, 23% in unemployment among men, women's unemployment increased by 54% in the same period. So again, depending on how you look at things, um, there's been a huge impact then on, on, on kind of um, women's labour market participation. And again, care, um, you know, so already kind of, you know, gendered patterns of care, They've been very much replicated and reinforced by COVID. And, you know, we, we know the CSO have um, published data on, on that. And we know that more women than men, ha- you know, have been caring for a family member or a friend or more likely to report the childcare issues or kind of the difficulty in working from home um, because of family being around. Um, you know, so without, without the usual kind of access to grandparents for support um, and with kind of schools and childcare services closed, it's, it's kind of really exposed um, the precarious nature of how we support lone parents in particular, parents in general, but lone parents in particular. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's reinforced, for us, it's reinforced the need for a public model of childcare. Um, you know, it's shown us the, the dangers and inefficiencies of relying on the market to provide what should be kind of essential um, public services. Um, I suppose another another thing that's been it's been a concern for us, but it's been heightened kind of results during the pandemic is, um, you know, the, the lack of attention to gender equality in public spending. So we're having kind of, you know, record spending at the moment, as we should. Um, you know, budget package was, you know, nearly 18 billion. We've had the July stimulus package. Um, 
all of the different funding streams from Europe. So, you know, spending record amounts of, of, of public money. Um, but, you know, we would be concerned about the lack of attention to kind of gender equality and economic decision making. Now, there's, you know, it's an overall concern, but some kind of glaring examples. Um, you know, when, when the temporary wage subsidy scheme was established last year, um, initially women returning from maternity leave were excluded um, from accessing it. Um, they weren't on the payroll kind of in the relevant kind of reference period. Um, and of course, some some employers um, do do pay people on maternity leave. So these women were OK because um, they qualified for the scheme. They were on the payroll. Um, but I suppose it was women whose employers did not pay a top up um, that were the most affected. Kind of so I, the, the more kind of vulnerable ones. Um, and rather than addressing this immediately, kind of when it was highlighted, um, government didn't move to address it until the Women's Council referred the matter to the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. And then that kind of resulted in it being addressed. Um, so I suppose, you know, obviously we're developing kind of plans at speed. Um, but, you know, we would say that, you know, just because we're in a time of crisis, it doesn't negate the need to gender and equality proof those plans. Um, if anything, you know, it's, it's reinforced the importance of kind of gender and equality proofing. Um, because if we ignore the gender issues, um, it can kind of multiply the effect of the crisis if it's not addressed as part of kind of the initial response. Absolutely. And, you know, are there issues that came up? And I know that it, it had been addressed and you're absolutely right. There was there was no move until your organisation had actually brought it further in terms of, of women returning from maternity leave. Are there any issues that you would be particularly concerned about that arose during the pandemic? you'd be concerned about them becoming kind of longer term issues once you know we, we kind of get over this this stage yeah sure I mean I suppose again you know um the the, the labor market kind of issues um so you know we were already aware of um women who've had to leave paid employment and um, for care reasons so I suppose you know we'd be highly concerned that COVID will kind of take us backwards in terms of you know the equal distribution of care um, and then obviously the effect of this kind of on labour market participation. Um, so as we, you know, I've kind of already talked about kind of the, the impact on women's unemployment, but I suppose, you know, unless we actually, um, unless our active labour market policy actually takes kind of steps to address the effect on women's um, labour market participation, then we're not going to see a, a recovery um, in the same way maybe that, you know, I suppose traditionally our labour market policy hasn't been as effective in supporting women's unemployment as, as men's or women's employment. Um, you know, the Women's Council did a gender analysis um, of spending on active labour market programmes, um, things like the you know, springboard apprenticeships, things like that, um, in 2018. And um, we found that uh, you know, there was clear gender bias in uh, who benefits from investment in, in those programmes. Um, in 2018, 73% of the beneficiaries were, beneficiaries were men. Um, and, you know, in terms of apprenticeships, only only one percent of women benefit from an investment in the apprenticeship. So, you know, on the surface, it's, you know, the, the, obviously they're gender neutral. It's not that women are excluded from or barred from accessing them or anything like that. But there's clear bias in terms of the outcomes. Um, so I suppose, you know, given the sectors that are affected um, and the high proportion of women in them, um, I suppose we, we kind of say that, you know, we need to really be carefully monitoring kind of um you know, and, and ensuring that the women have targeted supports, I suppose, to get back into the labour market. And I suppose, like many people, we'd be concerned that, um, you know, poverty will be further entrenched. Um, so 
while the COVID payments and COVID income supports were set above the kind of the usual and um, the standard social welfare payments. Of course, there are still many people who are reliant on, on the, that kind of standard rate of payments, um, which we know are not sufficient to provide an adequate standard of living. Um, I mean, the European Commission has said, and it's, it's very obvious really that, you know, the COVID crisis will increase the levels um, of those at risk of poverty, particularly for those groups that um, were already at, at greater risk um, unless policy measures really are introduced from preventing this, you know, to prevent this from happening. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of talk about well-being and well-being frameworks. And, you know, after Budget 2021 or alongside Budget 2021, there was a document published by government in relation to, you know, what a, a well-being framework might actually look like. What does well-being look like to, to you and to the National Women's Council? Yeah, and, I, and this is something else that Social Justice Ireland have been talking about for many years. And I mean, uh, you know, we would share the view that there is a need for kind of a, a radical change in how we measure success. Um, again, it's, it's well documented now that there are many things wrong with um, measuring success through continuous GDP growth. Um, you know, it, it doesn't take into account the damage done to the environment through, you know, constant production and consumption of goods and doesn't take into account inequality in society. Um, and I suppose crucially for the Women's Council or for, you know, feminists in general, um, GDP doesn't take into account the value of, you know, the millions and billions of hours of unpaid work carried out by women. You know, it, work it's not paid for, but it's absolutely crucial um, to sustaining the economy as well as society. Um, and it's difficult to put a market value on that. Um, but I know Oxfam published a report a couple of years ago um, where they estimated that um, women carry out about 38 million hours of unpaid work every week, um, contributing, I kind of think it was around 24 billion to the economy. Um, at the time, would have been equivalent to 12% of the, the, um, the Irish economy. So, you know, it, it's... The shortcomings of using GDP, I mean, have they've been recognised by kind of feminist economists for a long time, but I suppose it, it's good to see it becoming more uh, mainstream. So, of course, we have the, the Stiglitz report there a while back, um, you know, kind of calling for a kind of a shift in emphasis from measuring kind of economic production to measuring well-being. And, and it's just that that report kind of called well-being, uh, you know, it included things like sustainability, inequality, um obviously, you know, material living standards like income and consumption and wealth, but also things like health and education and, and work and, um, you know, put voice, having voice and, and, and so on. Um, so I suppose, you know, and, and then also New Zealand have pioneered the use of wellbeing budgets in, in 2019, and, and they included things like child poverty, um, even things like domestic violence and, and mental health and so on. Um, so I suppose for us, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, offer you know, a very holistic alternative to the use of GDP. Um, you know, 17 goals span a very wide kind of range of, of kind of um, indicators as such, um, you know, looking at kind of everything from gender equality to sustainability and education and health. Um, so I suppose we, we were happy to see a commitment to wellbeing budgeting in the last programme for government and, you know, very much look forward to that being progressed. And of course, you know, gender equality must be the key element of kind of any kind of well-being budgeting initiatives. Absolutely. Um, and finally, if I can, can what would be your wish list? What would be on your wish list or the council's wish list in terms of policies that we need into the future, kind of short, medium, long term? 
how long have you got, Colette? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, I mean, you know, for us, one of the looking at maybe the kind of the, the really big and um, big issues, um, you know, one of the most effective and kind of efficient ways to tackle um, persistent gender inequalities is sustained investment in public services. Um, so that would be across health, um, you know, housing, um, and crucially, kind of as well as investment in the care economy um, is a bit is a big thing. So you know, we need a public um, and affordable and accessible care infrastructure to support people at all stages of the life cycle. So you know, that includes a public um, early years and school age childcare system, but also universal adult social care. Um, so, and we would say that the public model and uh, the public element of that model is important because, you know, we need to address affordability, um, but also pay and working conditions for workers. Um, so we know that kind of in terms of childcare, um, countries of public um, public provision tend to have childcare services that are more affordable and accessible and of higher quality than countries of private service provision. So that that, that would be kind of, an, I suppose, an important one for us. Um, but also addressing poverty, I suppose. And again, you know, addressing poverty includes the provision of universal basic services, um, but also decent work and kind of providing adequate income supports to keep people out of poverty. Um, so I suppose, you know, the, there has been an annual increase in the minimum wage in, in recent years, um, but it did stagnate during those austerity years and there was no increase um, for a period of about 10 years. So, you know, if government is serious about closing the gap between the minimum wage and the living wage, we need to see greater increases than the 10 cent an hour that was agreed, you know, late last year. Um, so, you know, we would like to see the, the, the minimum wage move towards the living wage. But also, again, the social welfare system plays um, an important role in, in reducing poverty and inequality. Um, and it should ensure that everyone, no matter what their age or life stage, can live free from poverty. And clearly it's not it's not doing that. It's failing uh, for many people. So I suppose we would um, support the call for social welfare to be benchmarked to the minimum essential standard of living. Um, and I'll say lastly, since um, since the Commission on Pensions is currently uh, uh, having their consultation, um, another key issue for women's equality is, is pensions. Um, and I suppose with pensions so tied to participation in the labour market and not adequately kind of recognising or valuing care and uh, women then inevitably lose out. So I suppose from our research um, and from our kind of decades of advocacy work with older women, um, our view is the best way to achieve equality for women is through a universal pension, um, which will guarantee income adequacy in older age and, you know, and it would recognise kind of the paid work and unpaid work are equally valuable. I know that's something that Social Justice Ireland would also support. <laughs> it certainly is. And we have various proposals on it. We've actually got a, a kind of a large publication on it that we published a couple of years ago, um, setting out our view on a, a universal state social welfare payment. And that would certainly be something that, that we're pushing with the that um, commission uh, submission as well. Um, and it's, it's just interesting that you touch on so many things that impact on you know the the, the lives and the well-being of, of women and it's they're so intrinsically linked with with poverty and with good health and with well-being and, and all of that kind of suite of as you say that the universal basic services and we would advocate in tandem with that obviously the universal basic income and um, to make sure that people you know are have that kind of safety net not alone have they got that kind of that suite of services that people need things like subsidized childcare. Um, things like good healthcare, you know, away from this two-tiered system, but also that they have 
an income that's sufficient to give them kind of a discretionary income to be able to live a, a decent standard of living. Um, but the, the the interesting piece around all of that is if that was already in place and if there was good quality affordable housing already in place, the living wage would actually be closer to the national minimum wage. Absolutely. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's very us. chicken and egg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's lots of work to be done. Absolutely. Uh, Sandra, thank you so, so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Um, happy International Women's Day to you. Happy International Women's Day, Colette, and to anyone who might be listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, research and analysis on poverty, the labour force, or our proposals for a universal state social welfare pension, or any other policies touched on in this episode, check out our website www.socialjustice.ie. And as always, if you have any ideas or suggestions for our podcast, please let us know by emailing us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.